American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Good morning, everybody. Hope you all are well. And um, what I'm going to do right now is do a very brief talk just to help to give you some context uh, for the things that will be coming over the next uh, day and a half. Um, and to try and understand, uh, you know, just to make sure for some of you this will be a review, um, some of the questions of timeline and conflict in the early stages as we move into reconstruction. The last time I uh, talked to you, we were coming out of, uh, out of battlefield fighting, into the transition, um, into a post-battle, but as I argue, a continuing state of wartime, and a spreading instead of a, a drop-down in the number of people, but a dramatic spread in the position of the army. Um, as the government faces the key questions of will rebels be loyal or rise up again, the question of what's happening, why, why slavery endures, and these reports that they're getting is that slaves and people uh, run to U.S. lines. Um, and then over the course of the summer and the fall, the question that after having marched through um, and forcibly ended slavery, the questions that start to come up of these continued complaints on the ground about the limits of what they called practical freedom, of ex-slaves reporting that they couldn't move, they couldn't travel, they weren't getting paid their wages, and of their inability to access a legal system, um, and of the limited way in which the framework um, that Andrew Johnson had set up in appointing provisional government governors um, some of whom continue to keep intact all of the old magistrates, a few, especially William Holden in North Carolina, replaced all of them. But when they hold, when I, uh, you know, sort of uh, one of the places as I got close to the end last, was that as the, they hold elections for new constitutional conventions and then new governments in the South, um, that Johnson, while the people he appoints, um, are to us, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, white Southerners, most of whom had served in one level or another of the Confederacy. Um, many of them are swept out of power in those elections because of not being diehard rebels. And then one of the disconcerting things for us as we look back historically is that while Johnson will eventually become an icon of the rebel South and the person who gets most directly blamed for the failures of Reconstruction or the limits of Reconstruction, that in 1865 until early 1866 he was actually hated in the South and considered much more tyrannical than Lincoln would have been, and his picks are voted out of office by people who didn't just serve the Confederacy but were secessionists. And this strange way in which that being a secessionist, not just a Confederate, became a key way of winning political support. And that these governments, as we closed on last time, start to vote in a series of acts, which we now call the Black Codes, which have some variants state by state, um, but which generally uh, turn upon questions of trying to limit African American access to the legal system. Um, including limiting when and under what circumstances they can testify, um, that impose very strict vagrancy laws, um, that criminalize the act of looking for employment, um, and allow states to sweep up people who are either trying to bargain for contracts that criminalize luring people from one position of employment to another. Then in South Carolina, impose discriminatory licensure taxes to prevent African Americans from entering professions. In Mississippi, proposed laws that prevent African Americans from that ban them uh, from owning and possessing property in towns. Um, some of these, these are often referred to generally in the literature as uh, you know President Johnson's governments or even his black codes. 
And while Johnson was, even for the standards of the 1860s, a remarkably racist person, what's interesting when you watch the, his interaction is that he's appalled, not on ethical grounds, but that he believes, which turns out to be true, the Southern governments are destroying the act of destroying themselves. And his goal always had been to create a few governments that would be able to fulfill the requirements of Congress and be reseated, and to use that as a double wedge. One wedge backwards to the state governments that weren't admitted in order to say, you've got to clean up these things. And he had been very adamant on a couple of things. A, that they had to not just acknowledge that slavery was dead, but outlaw slavery. They had to approve the 13th Amendment. And as, as legal scholars point out at the time, he's going way beyond the normal power of the presidency in doing this. The president doesn't generally have the power to say, well, it's sometimes portrayed as he believed in states' rights. It, there's, in fact, almost no more dramatic example of someone overriding states' rights than for a president to say to a state, you pass this constitutional amendment or you don't exist. So he's willing to use his power of authority to end slavery, to ban the repayment of the rebel debt. He sends generals on the convention floors to tell them that if you don't do these things, we won't let you back in. And he considers, he writes to them, that he considers some of the black codes, while he's certainly you know, not outraged by them on moral grounds, what he's hoping to get is a few southern governments that clear Congress as far, and that creates a double wedge. So it sends a signal to the other ones that they have to make these small adjustments, and that by moving people into Congress, it creates a weight in Congress to eventually pull the rest of the South. And he's sure the first one will be his state, Tennessee, which he had run as a military governor, and where he had led uh, the fights against slavery, though not to enfranchise African Americans. So in certain ways, he he's a great disappointment to radicals especially in that he doesn't use his powers to extend the vote to African Americans as some do. But even through the summer, he's considered by many, by many Republicans to be better on Reconstruction than Lincoln would have done. That will change dramatically over the course of the next you know, 12 minutes. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things that I'm going to try, and you know, two points that I'll just make on big picture before I sort of throw a lot of uh, stuff at you, about, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, you can, you can imagine, you know, in the cartoons where the angel and the devil sit on your shoulder, you can decide which of those is the historian, possibly the devil. Um, but, you know, the things that I think that historians, when reading other people writing about the past, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's interesting and fascinating to see what they do. There are two aspects that I'll try and use reconstruction to point out that illustrate things that historians are skeptical of. One of which is a tendency to personify the nation and to talk about a general national either mood or decision. Um, there's no, you know, historians generally don't do this, especially political and social historians, because there's no way of saying what the nation did. In fact, even things like the state is impossible to talk about on those terms. You have competing and conflicting opinions, competing and conflicting versions of government, conflict within the U.S. government, between the War Department and the Treasury Department. And so the kind of generalization and the assertion of a particular, especially when it works in a way in which you look at an outcome, and then, and then read that when you would. But when others would look at an outcome and read backwards and use that as proof of what the nation wanted. Um, in fact, this is completely antithetical to the way that historians think about the past. Um, that it's a series of conflicts, of different conflicting groups, and one thing I'll touch on today and gesture toward on Thursday in our final, is how long and for in, in what sort of strange ways the Republican Party of the North remains interested in the idea of civil rights deep into the late 1880s, early 1890s, and that the narrative of abandonment 
obscures one possibility by saying that there's a unitary force that makes a decision and opposes another narrative, which is a defeat. And that a democratic defeat of the Republicans in Congress is the crucial turning point for why these things fall, rather than an internal set of surrenders, in my opinion, not everybody has this. So one is to sort of be careful about those kinds of abstractions and generalizations, especially on the abstraction of the level of the nation, but even on the level of the government. Government is often working across purposes and will be even within just this federal government, forgetting about federal and state. And a kind of post-World War II, and especially a post-Eisenhower and Little Rock sense that what exists is what the federal government has decided to accept or tolerate, which has almost no applicability to government knows very little, literally very little, about what's happening in much of the country, um, and has very little ability um, to respond to that, in part because, to respond to most things, in part because of the efforts of Democrats to shear out of its power, and to drop the army, and in fact to defund the army at key points. So that's one. The other is to think about, is the importance that historians place upon secrets. That you know, back from Max Weber, not a historian, but you know, we'll claim him anyway, he's a sociologist, and you know, fight later. Um, but that the historical art, he said, is the art of thinking sequentially, which is not, you know, it's, you know, sometimes say one damn thing after another, don't you feel like that? But the idea that to understand what's possible, you have to understand an exact, a specific moment in time. And that things that seemed unthinkable, certainly in 1860, um, or even in 1865, suddenly attain momentum in 66 and 67. And similarly, as other things happen, including the great political reaction to the Depression in 1873 to 1874, things that seemed inevitable come to seem not inevitable. And to understand being able to place it within, not necessarily within every piece of uh, possible context, which no one can do, but to understand reconstruction itself is fumbling along, the people are fumbling along in these sequences that reveal preferences that hadn't been expressed before, that make things that they might have imagined suddenly seem possible, and then on the contrary, make things that seem alluringly close disappear off stage. So as we close, uh, so as we get into 1866, in December 1865, the great transformation is that Congress has been out of session uh, since March. One of the great what ifs is that it would have destroyed a Spielberg film. But I think one of the things I tell my students is what if maybe one of the great missed opportunities in retrospective reconstruction um, was what if Congress had failed to pass the 13th Amendment in uh, January, February 1865. Almost certainly, Lincoln would have called the new Congress into session. If the new Congress is in session when he's assassinated, they would never get themselves out of session. If they're in session, Andrew Johnson is suddenly going to be placed under restrictions that he's not placed under in the period between April and December when Congress is out of session. Because Congress returns and immediately says, we're in charge of the war powers. This is crazy to 20 and 21st century Americans, but a Whiggish view had grown that Congress was not only in charge of the executive branch, but that especially had control of war powers. Lincoln had resisted this, and it's part of what's going to cause his conflicts with Congress over Reconstruction. But as they come in, the first thing that they say is, you're not in charge. We are in charge, and this is not only because of disagreements about what's happening in the South, but it's also a principle for many of the ex-Whiggish, ex-Whig Republican members of Congress. Congress controls the military. Congress controls the war power. Andrew Johnson, along with being a dire racist, is a Jacksonian Democrat and believes in the unitary power of the presidency. 
And so all of these things are in conflict as they come together. At first, many people think they'll stitch them together. This is partly why, you know, uh, every year, you know, well, we seem like we're going to skip it this time. You get this sort of allure. Why doesn't the presidential candidate choose someone from the other party? It would show great unity. Well, sometimes presidents die, right? And if you turn over your presidency to another party, it turns out to have very dire consequences. Uh, you know, Harrison turning over to Tyler, disaster, right? Taylor, disaster, right? You, you need to have, even, you know, choosing someone from the other wing of your party is fine if you can guarantee you'll survive. Turning over the presidency to someone who had been a Democrat, though a loyal one, meant that Johnson was alienated from large parts of his, of his, of his cabinet. He didn't recognize many of them, though he had been in the Senate at uh, his inauguration as vice president. By legend, he's drunk, though he's probably sick. Um, at his inauguration, delivers a bizarre and rambling speech that is kind of taken off to the country uh, to recuperate with the Blairs and not really seen again significantly until the assassination. So he doesn't have this capacity to build alliances with Congress that Lincoln had. Um, many people think there's ways to work it out, and Congress begins to pass a series of bills to assert their power, one of which is an extension of the Freedmen's Bureau Act, which had been passed. Um, in, the, uh, in the winter session the year before, and which establishes this bureaucracy. In many ways, it's easy to fetishize it as its own bureaucracy right in the South. In fact, it's very often simply the Army, by the 1866, simply Army post commanders or provost marshals also doing this job. But it creates a structural way to respond if they're going to intervene in court cases, they can distribute rations, and mostly can be a set of eyes. Not necessarily an overwhelming set of power, but a set of eyes creating the courts. When Congress extends it in 1866, they deliberately set up this time frame that'll last, and it'll last until 1868. Always in their head is they're going to need to hold on to power in the South for a while, but they don't run around in November 1868 saying we're still occupying the South because presidential election, lose the presidential election, it all collapses. Johnson, to the shock of uh, our Republicans, vetoes it. They write a Civil Rights Act as they're getting these reports on the limits of, of practical freedom on the ground. They write a Civil Rights Act that are meant to establish for the first time what are the bundle of rights in statutory law as opposed to this practices of common law that they took for granted. And in many ways this is an interesting, intellectually interesting, but baffling problem for Republican lawmakers and it shows some of the tension of what they're trying to accomplish. These people, especially the ones from Eastern Ohio, Western New York, they thought things worked great there. They weren't running a revolution to transform New Hampshire and Massachusetts and Western New York and Eastern Ohio. They believed in the common law. They believed it established these basic principles for men, not always for women, but of travel, of contract. And they couldn't understand why this wasn't happening in the South. And some of the abolitionists who had believed you'd lift the problem of slavery and the world would remake itself find themselves baffled by it. And this interesting shift happens. Yeah. That's not part of the common law. And that's not what they're looking at. They're looking at a series of rights that we would consider even more basic. The right to travel, the right to public accommodations, the right to make contracts, the right to access the legal system. The right to vote is, an inch, is something they're debating separately. Um, but they, don't, they consider, while people disagree on whether that should happen, they agree that that has to be established by statute. Set by your state, 
So they pass this. Again, they believe that they're working in back ways to Johnson and that he'll sign it and he, and he vetoes those. And this fundamentally disrupts or you know, creates an irreparable rupture between Congress and the President. In part, it's as Congress is responding, they're both responding to what's happening in the South, but to different people. Congress is increasingly getting either directly through free people's conventions or one step indirectly through the reports of free people to army officers and bureau agents reporting back either to Oliver Howard, the commissioner of the bureau, or to the military command, which after December 1865 ran become very embedded with congressional Republicans, um, that they're getting reports on the ground about why there's no basic rights. Not equality, but even basic access to rights. Johnson is getting reports that are increasingly being skewed through Southern planters asking for pardons. And so they're both responding, but to different groups and different pressure groups. After this fracture, Congress then faces a series of questions of what to do next. There had been circulating from December, John Sherman, a moderate, will say that in December, a majority of the Republican caucus, and while there are interesting divisions, it's an interesting moment in which they fight like crazy in the caucus, and then most of the time agree to vote unanimously on the floor. They become almost a parliamentary form of government under this pressure from the president. In caucus, he says most of the Republicans are ready for enfranchisement, but they all believe they're going to lose. In the winter and spring, if they knew it, in the winter and spring of 1866, enfranchisement is defeated in several state elections, including in, in Connecticut, and the idea dies for the strike. Um, you can consider this as sort of you know, a failure of, of will or ethics, and it certainly could be that. It also was their sense that if the Democrats won a huge victory in the 1866 midterm election, nothing else they didn't matter. They would just come in that day and immediately restore the southern states, no matter what they were doing. So, what then can they do? They've got a president they don't trust, a military they do, and that's seeking to create some independence from the president, and a series of problems of how to establish a new order on the ground in the South. What emerges out of this confusion and out of the fear of the midterm elections is a strange set of compromises. They override Johnson's vetoes, they change the Freedmen's Bureau bill a little bit, they override and pass it and then override the veto of that, override the veto of the Civil Rights Act. They pass a law that keeps the military from being indicted for crimes on the ground, um, which Southern state governments were eager to do, as they had done in Kentucky, to indict them for kidnapping if they made arrests and so on. Um, and they pass the 14th Amendment, which, uh, after an incredibly complex series of sequences, ends up as this grab bag, in which it includes both the first definition, though it had been embedded in the Civil Rights Act, the first definition in the Constitution of what federal citizenship is, birthright citizenship, and a way to respond to complaints on the ground that the belief that Southern states were preparing to say ex-slaves were not citizens. Um, that includes a series after a deep fight about whether to restore Confederates to power. Um, that includes then a strange compromise in which they offer Southern states a choice. They'll lose if they restrict the vote by race. They'll lose representation in Congress. So they're hoping that it'll create an incentive uh, for them to start to enfranchise, to forbid the pain of foreign debt, of the, to forbid pain of the rebel debt, and to forbid pain um, repudiation of the national debt. But then they face one last question, which is, is this enough? And it's sometimes written as if this is a peace terms offered to the South and the South rejects. But in fact, a series of Republicans had always realized that this was not going to be enough. And so in this mix, they don't go farther, but then they also reject the 
an effort to say that any statement passing the 14th Amendment is bad. And so that even that might not be enough, because I'm laying in wait to see what's going to happen in, uh, in the elections. Johnson runs against the 14th Amendment in this infamous swing around the circle where he gives speeches denouncing Republican leaders like Thaddeus Stevens and, and Charles Sumner as Judas, as traitors, as the real secessionists. And then in November, December 1866, or October, November 1866, Northerners vote overwhelmingly for the Republicans against Johnson, who tried to put together his own party. And the same Congress comes back in for a lame duck session. And it's in this lame duck session that you get some of the dramatic transformations. Almost all of these have been sketched out in 1866 and even in 1865. Um, but it's needing this referendum, the support, this realization that they're not going to lose their mandate. When they come back, they turn the South into military districts. So there are five military districts. Tennessee is accepted for reasons that I'll be glad to go into. They appoint a military commander over each one. They declare every government that Johnson had, that Johnson's actions have put in place in the South provisional, and uh, so therefore subject to being overridden by the government. And they include protections for the military rule, and they empower and require the military to oversee the registration of the vote for new constitutional conventions, and for that registration to be opened up to the American men. Um, so this is not only an opening of the vote, but also a recognition that a key problem is going to be who can, how to make it happen. And the military has become their, their recourse for making it happen. Over the course of 1867, these are the sort of people. And it does remind us that the question that some Democrats, including not often motivated by racism, but not only, of the growing militarism of the government at a period where you see a growing military rule, um, in Mexico with the defeat of the, of the series of wars there, and eventually the, uh, the coming to power of Porfirio Diaz um, that you see happening in, uh, in parts of Europe. And these are the sort of uh, five horsemen of the apocalypse. These are the first group of military commanders in the South um, who range from, you know, who, who have a range from sort of moderate to someone like Bill Sheridan, um, a pretty dedicated radical and Grant's most beloved commander and who will continue up until 1876 to depose southern governments. Um, they march into the southern states, and in different respects. Dan Sickles, a kind of scoundrel from New York City, in different respects shows up in many ways a moderate, even a conservative, in the 1850s, uh, goes into South Carolina, voids the black coat of South Carolina, um, not, so not only fulfills his actual requirements of the, of the law, but really restarts to reset state law and state policy as a military commander. Sheridan not only um, orders the vote and the registration, um, but empowers African Americans to be on juries, dismisses uh, governors, uh, levy boards, mayors, many other people. And so this creates a backdrop uh, for what's memorably portrayed of these early elections, early registrations and early elections. And it also helps to create a foundation for things that have been building throughout, which is the sort of transformation of these African-American political communities formed in slavery, reformed and reshaped in the period right after emancipation. Uh, so not waiting and pressing you know, throughout, but to find new moments of open expression. And so the election of the majority of the constitutional convention, you know, majorities in South Carolina at different times of the uh, state legislature constitutional convention African-American, 
of a series of African American congressmen, uh, U.S. senators, and for the for firming up of the foundation of a series of African American institutions, uh, churches, schools, etc., on the ground during this period. We'll also see 14th Amendment. And then the question surfaces of what's next. So you voted in new governments. These new governments, while often disproportionately led by white Republicans and, not, not, uh, and often disproportionately led by white Northerners, especially former military officers, uh, but with a base of African-American support, then how do you sustain them? And this will be an ongoing frustration and battle that really lasts from 1868 until 1892 when this, really, this effort really dies, um, or 1891 when this effort really dies. Recognizing that, especially in parts of the South with large white majorities, that even without violence and fraud, which they know is happening anyway, that it's quite possible these Southern states would retract the expansion of the vote once whites reassert powers, they do almost immediately in Georgia, um, and as they always were going to do demographically in places like North Carolina and Tennessee, though Tennessee's fraught with these internal political divisions. They make it to 1860, they face then what's going to happen. With these renovated states in most areas, not in, uh, not in a handful, they vote them back into Congress in the spring and early summer of 1868, most of the southern states. They mostly elect Republicans who are sworn in and then Grant runs as the, you know, goes from the Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Interim Secretary of War to Republican presidential candidate saying, let's have peace. But it's a certain kind of peace. It's a peace established by the use of the military to remake these governments and to portray the written to run not as the, as the people of war and revolution, but to make this the Democrats oppose, especially Frank Blair, the Vice President, says we're going to send the Army back into the South if we win and take out all those governments. Trying to position themselves toward the middle to win the presidential election, knowing the consequences of losing. Grant wins. Uh, he receives huge majorities in the South, um, though that's because of who's participating in the South, especially among African Americans. Um, the belief is, though it's hard to pin down exactly, that he probably lost in the aggregate white votes in the North on the popular vote. As he comes in, Grant starts to look to say, what's next? And for him, and for many of the Republicans, the final stage is figuring out how to protect the vote. There had been surfacing from the free people in uh, the coastal regions of South Carolina who had been able to claim usage of land and then be, been taken away, they had it stripped away from them in late 65 to 66. And for many conventions, a belief that what the end point of the South would be land redistribution. And this had surfaced at different times as a, as a possibility. 66-67, um, and it's held out as this thing that might happen, but it's never able to generate enough support within Republicans in the Congress, um, and in this sense, um, when some white Southerners to the degree they do acquiesce to these new governments, to the degree they do in 67-68, it closes the door on that. Now restored to Congress, normal civil law remains, is back and forth, there's not a mechanism for stripping away landed property. So there is a brief window in which it seems possible. Um, but that's something that the Republicans are not able to hold their power along, to hold them so to, 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 to go along with. What does turn is to the idea that Republican societies, smaller Republican societies, are sustained by the will of the people, and that's expressed in the vote, and that the particular incidents that they're hearing about in November 1868, especially in Louisiana and Georgia, um, in which the 
parishes of Louisiana have virtually no African-American turnout because of, uh, of terror and fraud, and in which Georgia turns into you know, a sort of generating ground of the spread of, of the use of paramilitary violence in elections. As they come back, Grant says, our work can't be done until we figure out how to protect the vote. And in this extraordinary one more December session, and this extraordinary, and an extraordinary set of fights over what that means. Is it a positive right to vote? Um, is it with the pressure from female suffragists to consider female suffrage, um, which doesn't, doesn't, doesn't move, obviously? It's set up as this set of guidelines, of sort of barriers, as they imagine. And the reason why the 14th and 15th Amendments are set up as barriers is a purpose of contradiction. The Northerners, many Northern lawyers, believe that things work fine in the Northern states on the level of the law not on the side, and so the goal was to regenerate local law with these federal boundaries around it. 15th Amendment therefore establishes not a positive right to vote, but a set of regulations about how it shall be denied. There's a fascinating backstory about the way that Western Republicans rebel over a fear of enfranchising Chinese Americans, of illiterate Irishmen being you know, something that surfaces as a fear among Northern Republicans. And so in this interesting irony, the one group that the Northern Republicans hold together on is that they need to find a way to enfranchise African Americans, but not anybody else. Uh, you know, some of this is pure political calculation. Some of it is, is alliance, right? But they were the, the soldiers who worked with them. And from there, as states come back in between 1866 and Tennessee to the final ones, in Texas, Mississippi, and in, an, in Virginia, and in an extremely bizarre circumstance, Georgia, which is thrown back into martial law and reserving. And then immediately surfaces the problem of enforcement. That as word of the Klan spreading, um, originating in these bizarre origins as a social club, it is a dramatic troupe, uh, you know, in, uh, in Tennessee, uh, so, you know, then, then as it spreads with elections um, to becoming the Klan or Klan-like vigilante groups, because the Klan is often sort of as much an idea that gets transported as a functioning organization, um, that reports from the South continue. And one of the fascinating things for, for us to use is that they produce these incredible sources, these interviews um, and these hearings um, that begin in many respects with the massacres in 1866 in Memphis um, that spread to the Klan fights of pages of pages of interviews on the ground with African-American and white Southerners what you'll see between 1870 and suggestion toward what we'll touch on more on Thursday in the early 1890s is a set of deep debates about what the government could do to intervene on the ground to the denial of the federal right. Faced with these, um, and in a period of alleged peace, of a, a legal peace, not a peace of quiet, um, under Grant's prodding, Republicans will pass a series of enforcement acts that empower him to declare martial law again, which he does in South Carolina, to send the soldiers in to make widespread arrests. Um, and even as late as 1875, we'll contemplate in several states back into martial law. This produces a huge political pushback, and eventually, um, and infamously, Grant will give up in Mississippi in the face of that and in the, the threat of impeachment by Democrats in Congress in 1875. But this fight will continue after the alleged compromise of 1877, which did not remove troops from the South, as I said last time. The fight continues to be fought. It's not that people get to that moment and they think Reconstruction is over. What's over is that Democrats are in charge of state governments, but the US Army will continue to serve as this thing that can be appealed to. 
following the compromise of, alleged compromise of 1877. In 1878 and 79, Democrats will not pay the Army, reduce its size dramatically, and pass a series of acts that were meant to make it more difficult for the Army to intervene in the South um, in order to separate what's going on on the ground from what's happening in Washington. But Republican presidents, uh, where I will continue to send, not grow up with Cleveland, but will continue to send troops into the South um, into the late 1880s. And this will then manifest as a final big fight in 1890-1881 in Congress about the continuing use of the enforcement act. Um, so we've got then this sort of series of sequential moments, this extraordinary explosion of possibility of the, on the ground at the beginning, and of this ongoing struggle to find out what it means. By 18, 1877 is the end of state power for Republicans. Um, but it's not the end of the idea of the transformation of Reconstruction. African Americans, in many ways, hold more local offices in the late 1870s and 1880s than they did earlier. Um, and they continue to be seated in Congress. The last Congressman from the South, African American Congressman from the South, George White, will give his famous farewell speech in 1901. And it'll be disfranchised in the 1890s and early 1900s. They'll finally dissever those connections and lead to this term. So part of it's keeping in mind the fluidity, um, the length of some of the gains, some of the gains on the ground that I'll just touch on, including the sort of extraordinary growth of property ownership and of literacy during this period. Um, and so to see it not as a sort of moment either sabotage from the beginning or cut short directly at 1877, but a series of things almost surprisingly put in place at the beginning and then a 20-year fight to figure out whether those gains can be defended. And the end of that fight really be Disfranchisement, in many respects, seemed the, the alluring goal for a lot of radicals, some of whom favored land redistribution but knew they wouldn't get that through the caucus. And there were splits within congressional Republicans over what, how much disfranchisement they could get over, um, from the federal level of ex-Confederates. Um, the 14th Amendment, after a series of uh, very tense uh, conflicts, ends up with this eliminating uh, with this prohibition of high Confederates from holding office. When they come back, but not a voting. When they come back to pass military reconstruction, the Republicans use that exclusion from high office and say that those people excluded in cannot vote for the Constitutional Convention. This raises a set of really interesting questions, like because it's based upon violation of the oath, but every magistrate in Virginia took the oath. So theoretically, you could be talking about a huge, a fairly large number of people in certain states, and lots of other states, and nobody knew the magistrate was, much less that they had been required to take it out. Um, so there are both exclusions and sitting out these constitutional conventions in 1867. Um, and, uh, you know, and also there's a thing that's built into it that it needs a majority of votes in support. And some white southerners think if we withhold our votes in support um, or we don't show up, that they'll fail to meet the standard. And Congress punishes the view. Let's a few in that almost did it and makes clear they'll punish the ones who don't. So then it goes to the state governments, which is where. Republicans wanted it to be established. And one of the really interesting things is 
Um, the places with the larger African-American voting, South Carolina, Mississippi, um, had very little restrictions for, and there were very little restrictions for ex-Confederates. African-Americans say, if we start a process of exclusion from the vote, it's going to come back to us. It's going to start open. The places with really intense Confederate disfranchisement are the places where there were powerful white conflicts, uh, especially Tennessee and Arkansas. Um, and there were white Republicans needed to exclude ex-Confederates. And both of those states end up in, in essentially internal small-scale civil wars, not only small-scale, but last until uh, about 1870, or in Arkansas until 1875. That's a great note. It's a reminder that one of the reasons why post, especially post uh, World War II, uh, post World War II Americans look back and think enforcement's the simple part, it's the will to fund our part, um, is exactly the point that in the 19th century, the quote, in the 19th century, that's not the case. After these uh, use of federal troops to do the first registration, um, it's highly contested whether there can be any. Um, military presence around the poles. They do call troops out, especially in harsh areas, but they try and keep them away from the poles themselves, and there is no other functioning structure in place. There's some small-scale numbers of commissioners and marshals, but the Department of Justice, so we think of now what happens to the Department of Justice sends people, there wasn't a Department of Justice in 1869. The Department of Justice is established in 1870, um, and it's established with a handful of clerks. So the idea we have uh, there's this sort of coercive federal state apparatus, and what's it going to be used for? Um, doesn't function on a, but really the army is the extent of the coercive federal apparatus, and they're being shrunken, and even Republicans are wary about placing them directly at, at the polls. And in that case, the capacity to stop, they raise over and over these questions. But if we say they can't vote and they do, what can we do? Something James Garfield says over and over, and ask these questions, what, what will we do? And if they prevent African Americans from getting to the polls, what, what can we do? Uh, and they consider those open questions, but they don't have a set of tools at their hand to respond, other than indicting people after the fact, which they don't have a really weak set of tools. Problem of the 1868 election and Grant's uh, and the struggle to maintain a Republican authority. Um, there, I can send you a few Michael Perman, who's a sort of classic uh, 
political story of the era, and I can send you some links to it. I mean, it involves some estimates because the Germans being out exactly how that would be in much of the North African Americans couldn't vote until the 15th Amendment, which comes after. They're trying to nail that out. The Republicans definitely come out of it with a sense that they're in trouble. Uh, and that's self-interest, but they're also, they know, this is where the conflict helps, they know if the Democrats win, um, what's going to happen. Right? And of course, really, an ex-Republican, that was the liberal candidate in 1972, he runs it saying, we need to stop the Republicans playing the course of this. So the consequences of losing are both personal, but also ideological. into the idea that increasingly over the 20th century is kind of interested in conflict um, and in you know working against this sort of teleology or reading diagrams to understand not the full counter history but for the idea of the inherent unpredictability of certain things. And so trying to recapture the fluidity and conflict of these periods that in the disappointment are not to be inherently built. One of the weird things about the Failure of surrender model um, is that it oddly makes the 1890s, which are the real enemy decade, uh, step off stage, right? You know, that makes it seem as if what happens there is disfranchisement and so on, both inevitable and almost already built down. But that's really, you know, the legal sorts of arguments. Tear down between 18, starting in the mid 1880s and then culminating in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and by presuming the reconstruction's in a state of internal collapse instead of being overthrown. We lose sight of what's happening right there, and that's, that's what um, So I think it's probably more about how the discipline works than specific, because it's broader than just uh, than just reconstruction. Ongoing, interesting, and understanding conflict is against the sort of consensus in which you Yes. I don't believe there was a compromise in 1877. <laughs> Um, you know, the, um, there's a, one of the great books in American history, Stephen Woodward, you know, a giant of Southern history, um, and uh, you know, someone who almost all 19th century historians have somewhere, have somewhere in their family tree, because he trained a lot of uh, extraordinary people, um, wrote an amazing book about it, um, but much of it evaporates uh, upon contact. Um, that the idea that a group of people in Washington D.C. met and said, you know, you can have the South and we'll get the railroads. It's very alluring for a certain kind of theory and historiography that he was writing out of, that saw it as really a conflict between industry and agriculture, though Woodward was smart enough not to say that in those terms. Um, but, and that saw it as this explicit trade-off. What you actually see when you look at what's going on, so the problem in 1877 emerges because in the November election between Hayes and Tilden, 
Um, Sam Tilden, who lived just, uh, you know, uh, 10 blocks south of here on Gramercy Park, the National Arts Club, uh, double wide, uh, uh, double wide uh, uh, townhouse on Gramercy Park, uh, very common and wealthy railroad lawyer, um, and somebody who had deposed the, the city government of New York City uh, with the help of Brown Brothers and taken it over and had been served as governor of New York. Uh, runs again again as a New Yorker running to destroy reconstruction. Uh, the Republicans, uh, you know, scrambling away from Grant, nominate uh, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, from Ohio on election night. Um, Tilden wins a popular majority, um, but he's one vote shy as Republicans quickly discover late that night of being able to claim an electoral majority, and that it comes down to a series of contested states, which are not coincidentally various states where the military presence is still in the South. Um, so uh, early newspapers are not quite Dewey defeats Truman, um, but declare that, that Tilden is the winner. Um, by legend, one, a young uh, eventual senator in the Republican uh, headquarters on the Dennis Hotel in the 40s runs over um, to, in my memory at the time, so it would probably, but maybe runs over and lays out this map and they, they start changing the next day's headlines to undecided. In the chaos that ensues, both Republicans and Democrats send people down to these states, especially South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. It was an extremely odd one vote in, uh, in Oregon. Um, no offense to Oregon. Um, but they send people down. And there it raises a question of who determines, like in 2000, who determines where the, what the real uh, vote is when you get discrepant returns from different counties. Each of those state governments are teetering uh, Republican state governments, dependent upon the support of the military to hold the power, um, the Republicans, and each of those state governments want not only to throw out enough votes to make Hayes the victor, but to throw out even more and to make their Republican governor candidates the victors. To get all of this concatenation and confusion, Tilden's nephew is going around bribing people with his uncle's money, he doesn't have, he doesn't have children, uh, bribing people with his uncle's money, and what's even more interesting is that um, Tilden um, sees quickly that he's going to lose those fights, um, that the Republicans are going to control those boards, and they're going to send to Congress one return. And he starts to ponder a military response. So he gets the governor, the current governor of New York, to call out the militia, and they lay out the idea, Henry Watterson, who becomes a powerful congressman and publisher, lays out the idea of a set of Democratic militias that will go from New York down to Virginia, and then will encircle Washington, D.C., and declare him the president. And they actually devise this idea. George McClellan from the Civil War, living here in New York, uh, is meeting with Tilden at the idea that he'll take over command of these combined militias, a kind of, uh, you know, a Democratic, uh, Democratic, capital D, Democratic Army. Um, this creates a lot of fear among people. So there are a lot of people, both the Republicans and Democrats, who do not want this. Grant calls troops in from the west and stations them on the bridges into Washington, D.C., cannon on the bridges, um, and makes clear that, uh, that there won't be two, uh, two uh, swearing ends. But what happens then is Watterson writes, Tilden's one of the richest men, in, unlike you know, anyone we might think, he's actually one of the richest men in America, and he has like uh, three massages you know, a day. <laughs> and, uh, and Watterson writes to one of his friends and says, no man, you know, whatever. To, you know, massage before breakfast and massage after breakfast is going to lead an army. And when he writes back to the Democrats in Congress that Tilden is not going to press that. 
they themselves decide um, that they are going to not going to push the boats as far as they can. When you look at what's actually happening, there are people meeting at the Willard Hotel in Washington, which we were talking about. But the consequentialness of that doesn't work in two ways. One, they don't actually control Congress. Two, sometimes the congressmen who are meeting already know that their own uh, their own caucus is not going to actually force the issue as far as they can. And three, the deal for the railroads never happens. They don't, they don't, you know, the, the, the railroad outcome that, that Woodward says is what they want doesn't actually end up coming to fruition. Um, so the, the empirical nature of that, there are certainly a lot of people who want it not to be a civil war. Um, but the reasons it gets steered in this way, I think I've less to do with the secret meetings of the Willard Hotel and, and railroad bodies than with this realization of political actors. Um, a, that there are the immense consequences of pressing it, and B, that they have a person at the head who's who's doing that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.